Why didn't we move in together earlier? Because we didn't know it would be this fun. Yeah. I stole it. You stole it. I'm sorry to you. And I'm very sorry to America. Get it? Woo! Yes! That yes! thing was so ripping. Yes! <laughs> it's so much better just shooting Rigsby out here, because like the old show is like fake, but this is the real world. It's outside. It's amazing. I love making a movie. <laughs> All you gotta do is get your friends and then. And so we did. Here again to talk movies. I'm Bia from Portugal. I'm George from Austria. Crit sadly still couldn't make it today. We are, however, not alone. Today, we welcome our first guest. He did some voice acting for audiobooks. He's a film buff with very specific taste. He's also the owner of the Cinemates Film Club, where all of us met for the first time. Since he's from the US, he's not exactly a Euro himself, but we will grant him a visa for today. Welcome, Devin. Thank you all for having me. You're listening to two euros and a dollar per movie. Before we get to our two movies today, we have a couple of questions so you, as an audience, can get to know Devin a little bit better. So, Devin, what is the first film memory you can recall? Oh man, it's probably watching Escape to Witch Mountain, the 1995 version on the Disney Channel. I don't even remember watching it on the Disney Channel exactly. When I was younger, my great-grandmother would record what's on TV onto like cassette tapes, right? And she would have all these like compilation movies that are just smatterings of random films that she's recorded for me. And that was one of them. And uh, it, it's just such a bad movie. But I just have fond memories of being a small child wrapped in a blanket on the floor with the sun pouring in with one of those giant TVs mm -hmm. that are basically furniture. You know what I mean? That are kind of old, like the old yeah. like 70s style. And it'd be on the floor too, you know, and just sunbeaming on me watching this just terrible movie that I was, loved so much. Is it the 1975? Uh, no, the no, 1995. It's the second one. So I've seen the other ones. It doesn't hit me the same, for sure. Which ones would you consider to be, like, the best version of the story? Oh, With I mean, nostalgia aside, maybe. Well, yeah, as, as I was say, you know, nostalgia is a hard thing to put aside there. You know, it's probably... It's probably the one with the rock in it to be honest, which is, is which yeah. I, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, Race to Witch Mountain. That might be the best iteration of it. I think Letterboxd disagrees. Letterboxd thinks the 1975 one is much better. But uh, no, the rock one is fun. It's just the most fun one, you know? I, I've only watched Race to Witch Mountain, so the most recent one, that one with the rock. And I'm wondering, like, how the other ones compare in terms of, is it still about aliens because they mention powers in the synopsis mm -hmm. uh on the other ones but is it still about the is it still the same story or do they tweak a little bit race to witch mountain the rock one is uh i think from what i remember basically like he's like a cab driver or something and mm -hmm. aliens like abduct him kind of like mm -hmm. they're like you need to take us to this place yeah the one i grew up with is actually it's like about these two twin kids that figure out that they have powers and they're orphans and they get like adopted by this really rich person who gives them like everything and they use the money and influence kind of that they have to like start a following of people to 
go to Witch Mountain where they think all these other twins are that have these powers and they don't actually know that they're aliens at all. It's kind of oh. it's kind of cult like, honestly. It's almost like watch these kids get rich and then build a cult. <laughs> That's interesting that they are not aware they are not from this planet. No, not at all. They just have like, you know, they can move stuff with their mind and stuff. They're just orphans, you know, they just think they're orphan kids. Mm-hmm. That's just how we orphans are. <laughs> yeah, I have not seen any of the Witch Mountain movies, so I'm totally blind with this. However, the story you told with the recorded VHS cassettes at home, that rang so true to my childhood. My family has like a befriended family. The parents are super close basically for decades at this point. And they had some older children, but not in my age. So I never really had anyone to play there. However, they did have some um, older home-recorded VHS tapes. And I remember whenever we visited, I would religiously watch The Lady and the Tramp, the old Disney movie, there on the floor, laying down at the carpet. And I gotta have seen that movie like 20 times. And it was just like a (laughs) shitty home-recorded VHS tape of it. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, I don't have much of a relationship with VHS. I'm more of a DVD kind of gal. Uh, that was like most of my childhood. Yeah. And I thought you were the older one here. <laughs> I mean, not now. <laughs> but... Oh, yeah, no, she's, yeah. she's younger than I am. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I still have like a bunch of VHS cassettes somewhere in the basement. And probably a player still as well. Might still work. I have that for music, like some cassettes. Mm, um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of those, but for movies, no. I've definitely got a a fair collection of VHS movies, but most of them are actually ones that are like, they didn't print out in DVD. They didn't make them as DVDs or whatever. So I've mm. just, you know, I mean, I had a lot growing up, but I've culled them down to just those ones that you can't really get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm... Um, I'm like playing with the idea of one day getting an original Evil Dead VHS cassette because there's a similar thing happening like with the original Star Wars yeah. movies where you can't get the the completely original movie on any other medium other than VHS cassettes. They did some additional VFX shots and edited oh. some stuff for when they did the first DVD release. So I'm pretty sure you can only see the very original theater version of Evil Dead on VHS cassettes. That makes sense. I don't know if it's better or worse, but at least um, mm-hmm. at least uh, Evil Dead, every time they release a new version of it, it comes in some crazy, like, this one's wrapped in skin, like Necronomicon <laughs> replica and stuff. They're always like, really cool releases. Yeah. Next question. A film genre you love and why? Oh man, so this is an easy one for me, is speculative fiction is my favorite genre of just about anything uh, in storytelling. A lot of people don't know what speculative fiction actually is. It's basically encompasses horror, mystery, and sci-fi and fantasy, but not wholly. Only when it encompasses wholly is fantasy. The idea is that it's things that can't happen in our world. Oftentimes, you know, it's just a splash 
of something just different than our universe. And that's all it really takes for me to uh, have a big interest in it. I can love fantasy. I can love drama. I can love almost any type of film. It just, for me, needs to not take place in our world. So would that exclude some of the sci-fi movies that are just maybe slightly sci-fi and where you could see a possibility where in maybe a few years we could have a reality like in her let's say for example no because it's still not our world that we live in now i have a really strong love of sci-fi especially that's why i couldn't answer this if it was sci-fi or if it was horror because i love them equally and mm -hmm. for me sci-fi is all about the future somebody once said that you know sci-fi authors peek to the future and write down what they saw. Mm -hmm. That just thrills me to no end to see that in films, even like something mm -hmm. like her, that is nearly tangible. And I can look forward and say, that's going to happen. And it's not just, you know, hoverboards and stuff that we were promised. Yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, that's interesting. So with things like ChatGPT coming around, her might be like just around the corner of becoming reality from... Uh, being once speculative fiction you're not wrong at all the chat gpt thing is crazy <laughs> it's yeah. absolutely i give it five years guys five years i'm gonna have a online girlfriend okay mm -hmm. yeah they do awesome. that they do that <laughs> they actually do that there's an app for that right now that uses chat gpt to pretend it's your girlfriend or boyfriend yeah super random tangent i just saw something where a bunch of Redditors got tricked by an AI into paying for nudes of a person that doesn't oh. exist. So we're That's there, we're there, guys. It's happening. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you said it's not every horror or sci-fi. I guess every sci-fi is speculative fiction then, right? Um, no, not technically. So you are not wrong in what you say about like her... Um, it's it's still speculative fiction because it encompasses all of these genres, but it doesn't you know have to exist in that in in a world that's not ours. It is kind of our still world. Um, it's just mm -hmm. you know almost like a different timeline. But horror movies, especially you know, you have things like um, slashers, mm -hmm. can very easily exist in our world. Yeah, fantasy is the one most bound by it because you can't really do fantasy films in our world at all. It just it's not possible yeah so Devin, what would be a movie that should be deleted from letterbox top 250 so i'm probably gonna get a lot of hate from this <laughs> um but i don't see the fuss in chung king express <laughs> you make me cry i know <laughs> it's breaking my heart I know. I didn't really care for the uh, bulk of the film. The beginning was really the most interesting part to me when they were dealing with the drugs and stuff, but that kind of just... And it's gone. You don't see that again, like the entire film. There are just a lot of things in this movie that I think are incredibly messy. I understand that we have experimental film and that we have things taking risks and doing things differently, But the key to experimental film is it's exactly that. It's an experiment. And some experiments go wrong and don't work. And for me, as this viewer, this one just nothing about this movie works for me, really. 
I'm somewhat on your side with this. I have a lot of problems with Chunking Express. I'm way, way more in the middle. I, I don't hate it. I don't think it's a bad movie per se. But the general structure of the movie, I think, doesn't really work that well. I love the visual side of it. I love a lot of the acting of it. And like smaller moments, framing, a bunch of stuff like that. But just the general story of splitting it up into two major storylines and both end kind of before you really get a satisfying ending to the stories. And also they are not even split evenly. Uh, so like the first story is I think like one third of the movie and then we yeah, spend the rest sure. of the movie uh, with with the other story. I definitely also felt unsatisfied with Chunking Express back then. Since then, I have actually returned to Wong Kawai. I have seen Fallen Angels, which apparently was supposed to be the third story of Chunking Express. So it was it was supposed to be like a a three story anthology, and he made Fallen Angels into a separate movie because he had so much input to that one alone. And Fallen Angels turned out to be my favorite Wong Kawai movie, so I'm I'm on the edge of either Chunking Express would have been way better if they shortened the first two and made it like a an actual third movie and put Fallen Angels in, or if he made just a trilogy of it where each of those stories gets explored in depth. I think that one would also have worked for me, but the way it is, Chunking Express, as you said, kind of feels like a failed experiment to me whilst Fallen Angels feels like a proper thought out movie as a whole. I remember like the first part, like not, you know, really having a proper connection to the second one, mm -hmm. but thematically, like in terms of the loneliness, you know, just setting you up for what's coming after. But yeah, but they're two different, very different parts in the movie, right? Like mm -hmm. the even tone regarding tone. Yeah. Um, very differently. But I, I do love Shunking Express. It's probably my favorite one, even though I've only watched two, I think. So Epic Together and Shunking Express. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember if there's any other one, but I don't think so. I do want to get to Fallen Angels. I'm excited for that one. I think I'll I'll really love it. I've been pretty trepidatious to return to this director, so I haven't even seen anything by them yet. Otherwise, you, you're talking about Fallen Angels and how you th wonder if that would have made this a better movie. Um, I haven't seen Fallen Angels, as I said, but I don't know how it could have. Um, <laughs> there are things in this movie that just absolutely drive me up the wall. You know, the experimentation of it being like, the movie looks like it was, a lot of times looks like it was filmed through a beer glass, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> everything is kind of warbled and swifting and, like, moving around and swirling. and You know what I mean? Just blurry <laughs> and stuff. And I get it, but it's 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 too much for me, I think. You backdrop that with the one song. Just one yeah. song repeated oh, over man. and over and over again. And... I, I can't I, hang with it. I remember in the second story, the female protagonist is constantly listening to California Dreaming. Yeah. And it comes up like 20 times. Yeah. I was also super annoyed by it. I totally get the point of her being like, 
<laughs> dreaming. She was she California was, dreaming. Yeah, yeah, she was exactly doing that. You know, she wanted to get to California. She wanted to get to a different culture, to a different experience, a different way of living. And she was very not aware that, you know, in, in California, you probably also have problems in your life. Not everything's perfect. So that was kind of the idea of the, the song. And I get it. But I still didn't need to listen to that song 20 times in the span of one hour. Oh, man. <laughs> like, I get it. I totally get it. I listen to songs on repeat sometimes because I'm always like, damn, that was a good song. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, want, I want to hear that one more time. Like, I get it, right? But if I knew somebody like in another room or something was like, I think he just replayed that song. I would be embarrassed for some reason. So I just, I don't even want to hear another person do it. <laughs> Nonetheless, 20 times. No, I honestly was kind of into it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't bother me as much, um, but I do get your sentiment. Mm -hmm. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot of style over substance for me. And the substance that is there is... Not the type of uncomfortable I'm really into. In the beginning, the guy's super persistent against the girl and stuff. And it's very realistic, but it's not my... I'm not enjoying this, watching this interaction. And then the woman breaking into the dude's house and stuff is just fucking weird, okay? Like, it's it's a little much for me. Which brings us to a fourth question. A film you think is great, but you never want to watch it again. So this one took me a while to really think on. And I even changed it halfway through the week or whatever. Skinnamarink, I think, is a fantastic experience of a film, which is something I never thought I would say a year ago. And uh, I hope I never have to do it again. Uh, I don't know how much I should say, because you haven't seen this, correct? No, I haven't. All I heard is that it's like a slow visually dark horror film and you gotta really try to immerse yourself and not get distracted because the things are pretty vague that's how it got explained to me yeah i got pretty immersed <laughs> All right. i this was the movie that told me be a what's wrong with you you know <laughs> <laughs> Because I literally like, oh my God, everyone's saying like this movie is like fantastic, like a fantastic horror movie. And you know, like good, 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 like fantastic uh, horror movies are hard to come by sometimes. And whenever there's big buzz around one, I usually I'm on it. So I put myself in my bed, like I was watching a movie. And I guess I chose the wrong time to watch the movie, the movie because I fell asleep. It was really sad because i was i was enjoying i was into it you know the whole just very slow paced what is there what is not type of movie but um i i need to get back to it because i don't know where i left off so i don't remember much which is very good for my second watch so i'm i'm going to get back to it i would suggest starting it all the way over yeah for, for sure i usually always do you know i don't want to say too much about it uh for george's sake but what you're basically going through in this film is shots of bits of ceiling or floor, maybe the quarter, you know, corner of a TV screen 
that's all the shots are in this movie. There's you're not seeing any characters really. You might see the feet of characters. Um, mm-hmm. You're seeing the lights from doors opening and closing across the ceiling and stuff. It's incredibly dark, as you said. It's incredibly grainy. The film is very, very grainy. These shots are lasting five minutes at a time of just <laughs> a corner of a room. And that's in like, I mean, like zoomed in corner, like nothing perceivable yeah, yeah. is happening in this shot at all. I highly suggest anybody that watches this movie for the first time that you watch it in the dark and you watch it with headphones on. I think there's mm-hmm. something yeah. about the sound being physically close to you. It doesn't matter if you have a great surround sound, a big system goes all the way around your room or whatever. No, you want these sounds close to you, close to your body, close to your ears. What this film does is if you can make it through these very boring things, it replicates the fear that you gave yourself as a child. If you can remember being a little kid in your room and it's dark and you look out of your blankets and you can't quite see anything, but you can almost see stuff. And you start yeah. seeing shit that's not there and it starts freaking you out, right? Mm-hmm. The brain starts filling in the gaps. Exactly. There's a reason this film is so grainy is because it starts doing that. You're staring at a corner of a room for five minutes solid. It's very dark. And you start going, did I just see something? Was that there? Or did I make that up in my own mind? And if you can mm-hmm. make it through this movie, that it will do this to you. You'll get your own creeps constantly from being embraced in it long enough but it's a gauntlet you have to be wide awake you cannot have your phone near you if you break that concentration you kind of lose lose that connection to doing this if that makes sense it's almost like a meditative state of film Mm -hmm. true yeah you know you said you fell asleep yeah there's nothing wrong with that because you know they say uh you know if you keep your body still for 20 minutes or whatever you're you'll fall asleep because your body goes inactive or something i don't know if that's a old wives tale or what but it definitely feels like if you stare at the corner of a carpet for five minutes your brain goes inactive like it's just on a default (laughs) so it's 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 you know don't be comfy don't watch this comfortable (laughs) yeah like i watched it i i think it was like 2 a.m or something and it was a pretty long day and I suppose it's like I fell asleep not because the movie was boring. I do love like movies like Memoria. Memoria is like very slow paced. I'm not going to say that nothing happens, but there's no like big scene like in terms of action. So this one will probably be a movie that I that I like just for in terms of comparison to Memoria. Uh but yeah, like that time I just Totally, I was tired. The movie sets you to a um, almost like trance-like state. But I, I'm gonna get back into it when my brain is very much awake. So, how come you never want to see it again? Because I have a really hate-hate relationship with falling asleep. Um, <laughs> I've always kind of felt like. Um, you know, that feeling of you getting pulled into sleep and you're fighting it. I've always kind of in the back of my mind been like, if I was dying, this is practice to like 
will myself to not die. <laughs> and if I fail yeah. at this and I pass out, uh, I would have died. Like, I think everybody kind of does that to a little weird extent for some reason. This movie is just like, besides what's happening, you're fighting sleep so hard the entire time. I don't think you even don't have to be tired. Like, I think that you could be wide awake. And because of the nature of this film and what it's trying to do to your brain, it just will make you fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And it's not an experience I like having. And it's, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's incredibly boring sometimes. <laughs> the movie's really, <laughs> really boring sometimes. But you have to push through that almost like a barrier, you know, of boredom to really get that experience they're trying to give you. But like I said, you have to watch it with lights off. Try to watch it with headphones on. Zero distractions. Let this movie become your thing. I think the best I could ever say is it's almost like, you know, those things where you'd look at a screen and you'd stare at a blue dot and then it would change and you'd see like a face mm -hmm. imprint or whatever. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. that, but a movie. <laughs> like visual illusions. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 I was, I was thinking earlier when you explained it, it feels like explaining a, <laughs> a movie version of a Rorschach test. Yeah. Where you, yeah. You know, you're looking at like dots and, and your brain is figuring out the rest. It's uh, very, very accurate, actually. I like that experimental side. Yeah. So in contrast, what would be a movie that you would love to experience again for the first time? I don't have one. I thought on this so hard. I don't like to rewatch a lot of movies, actually, at all in the first place. The only times I do are when... I have forgotten them. And I don't mean like, oh, I don't really remember what happens in this movie super well. I mean like forgotten. I am a huge fan of the Godzilla franchise. It's a big deal to me. There are 33 Japanese movies in the Godzilla franchise. I try to watch them every two years. It is still hard to remember what happens awesome. in each one. Yeah, I do. And it's still hard to try to remember what happens in each one. And somebody be like, oh, what about, you know, Godzilla versus Nibira? I can't remember what what what's going on in that movie. I I have no idea. I don't remember it at all. So I kind of already get to do that sometimes where I get to watch things and it feels like I'm watching it for the first time. But I really just want to watch new stuff. That's that's my goal. I just want to keep seeing new things, new to me. So is there no movie that you love so much that you would like to get the experience of it feeling like you're watching new stuff, but you're discovering it again, you know? So in one way, uh, I would say definitely not because there's nothing to say that that experience would be the same now. I'm a different person than I was when I first saw that movie, or maybe there's a nostalgia attached to it mm -hmm. that I wouldn't be recreated now. Uh, you know, it's like a branching universe situation. Who knows how it would be today? But mm -hmm. really is that I, you know, I have children. And uh, my, my eldest child is getting to the age where I can start watching a lot of movies with her and she's having an appreciation and she starts to like, you know, give me her review of films and stuff. It's like when you watch with a friend or a spouse and you show them a movie that you love and you kind of keep looking at them to see what they're going to like their faces doing the whole movie <laughs> and stuff, right? 
waiting for that one moment where something special happens and you're already excited for the yeah. reaction. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Except you have such a connection with this child. You see you in them all the time, etc. When you see those expressions to go there go through their faces and it's similar to the ones you had it really does feel like i'm watching it again for the first time mm -hmm. i have watched movies with my daughter that made me feel like crying as a kid but i wasn't like at an emotional level where i would have cried right mm -hmm. where i've watched her reactions and that has almost made me cry That's so cool. Can't wait to experience with my nephew to show him like all, you know, the movies that I love. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh man, now don't get me wrong, you know, like it's a double-edged sword because I don't know how many movies <laughs> I've shown her. I don't know how many movies I've shown her and she's like, dad, this is really bad. And I'm like, what? And she's like, can I just watch like YouTube shorts now? And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> What was the what was the worst example of that? What was the thing that broke your heart the, the most when she wanted to like switch to TikTok instead? For me, probably it was Star Trek. It was trying to watch Star Trek with her and her just being like, this is so boring. And me being like, yeah, of course it is. You're eight. But I loved it when I was eight. So I don't know what to say. Damn. All right. It's usually it is usually TV shows. I'm trying to think of a movie. I tried to watch The Thing with her. Because she really loves horror movies. You, you try to watch The Thing yeah. with an eight-year-old? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, for sure. For sure. No, she, I mean, she's seen Scream. She's, she's seen uh, Megan. You know, she's watched all of the Chuckies except for Seed of Chucky and Bride of Chucky because they're uh, inappropriate in different directions that I'm not really ready to mm -hmm. watch with my daughter you know she's she's eight she's turning nine soon she's you know she's going through her changes in life i don't need to sit and watch that movie with her yet though but uh no she loves horror you know she loves scary stuff we live in kind of a you know a scary house there's skulls everywhere and demon paintings and stuff and i think it's just you know normal for her it's so cool but yeah we, i tried to show her the thing and she was incredibly bored um, I tried to show her Alien. The first time the alien pops out in the tube, when they're crawling through the tube, and it's like the big jump scare in the movie that happens first, she laughed. <laughs> and I was oh, like, no. how how fucking dare you? Are you serious right now? I can right hear now? your heartbreak from here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God damn. Um, I'm getting angry at your daughter way over here in Austria. <laughs> Just from That's listening really to funny. that. <laughs> it's really funny no yeah i mean but she's got some pretty good taste with other stuff you know in the other direction what was the most positive surprise to you where you were expecting her to be somewhat bored maybe and then she turned out to really appreciate it well i guess i'll start in the same vein i did last time and accidentally use tv but the twilight zone was something that we watched together that was really really amazing for me because i really really love the twilight zone the old one the black and white one mm -hmm. but as far as movies it's either hunt for the wilder people she really liked that a lot the taika waititi the taika waititi mm -hmm. movie yeah or um recently uh her mom fell asleep but she watched with me the entirety of knock at the cabin <laughs> and uh she really 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 liked that she had a lot of things to say about apocalyptic prophecies and 
you know, what she would have done in these situations if she was that little girl. And, you know, it was an interesting perspective to hear considering the movies about, you know, children. I may have just spoiled some of that movie. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I didn't okay. even it's think okay. about that. It's okay. You guys want to go to the next question? Yeah, I'm fine with that. The next question, your first own artistic expression regarding anything film related. So when I was a young fellow, probably eight, nine years old or something, my mom got a video camera and I would steal it all the time. <laughs> Take it to my friend's house. He had one of those classic lemonade stands and we would set that up put like fabric over it and stuff. So you'd hide the lemonade word. We'd bring in a chair and we'd get people to come sit down and do like a talk show. And we'd film this talk show and we would take turns being the host. And it was terrible. It was atrocious. And <laughs> we would do skits and stuff. And it was very Eric Andre of the time because a lot of times we would come up with these really dumb skit type pranks that we were going to do like, One time we had had my friend sit down and we had had his mom sit down as the guest and we were talking to her and we had bought these chocolate bars. We'd bought like a whole bag of these chocolate bars and we just started eating these chocolate bars mid conversation. And we would like <laughs> literally got to like 10 chocolate bars and she was like, what are you doing? And we just denied that we were eating the chocolate bars in front of her in any way, just completely like, we don't know what you're talking about and just eating more chocolate bars. And she's getting like furious about it. And we're just thinking it's like the funniest skit in the world to play on her. How old are you? I was probably like eight. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. When I answered this question, I talked about the the little stop motion stuff I mm -hmm, did as a kid. Mm -hmm. But around the same time, I think it was a bit later. So this this is not exactly my first thing. I also did with my then best friend some skit stuff with his early Nokia phone. So I, I assume it was also around seven, eight, nine years old around that time. <laughs> So, yeah, I, uh, again, you, you remind me of myself. <laughs> That's great. What's, you know, the, what's funny about that is, um, you know, I listened to that episode uh, when it came to that being my question. I couldn't decide on what to go with, if it should be the talk show or if it be, I had Spawn toys as a kid, as a little, little, little kid. I shouldn't have. Spawn? Uh, yeah, it's a, a superhero that's really dark. He goes to hell and the devil gives him super abilities if he'll be his like emissary of hell and then he comes back and is like i'm not gonna do that um it's <laughs> it's, it's very dark it's very much an adult property that i should not have been <laughs> collecting toys for but people bought them for me anyways um but i would uh take that same video camera and try to make stop motion fight scenes with them all the time that's hilarious but, uh, But I, but you'd answer the Playmobil, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to do the, uh, I'm going to talk about the talk show thing. <laughs> Amazing. Because they probably roughly happened at the same time. I don't know which one really came first, but. Yeah, I, I could say a similar thing about, about mine. So that's hilarious that we both kind of had the same experiences and both were not completely sure at which happened first. Absolutely. So Devin, what would be the most memorable theater experience that you ever had? So this was a hard question for me to answer as well, because I couldn't decide if I wanted to go with one of the very few theater experiences I have being either an early one or a more recent one. 
and a more recent one probably would have been a jackass movie. But my answer for this is the original Godzilla. Mm. Most Americans knew Godzilla as this really corny, cheesy character. When they released Godzilla in America, they edited out all of the main characters in the film, erased a crap ton of lines, reduced the music score, made a bunch of changes, and then superimposed an American reporter to be the main character of the movie and played the movie <laughs> off as a comedy, kind of. And it's like a cheesy drive-in monster movie. Most people now know that Godzilla is actually like a, you know, interpretation of a horrific event that a whole nation went through and that it's actually very dark and there's a lot of really sad, somber, and powerful moments in that film, in that original film. I think we can be a bit more specific where, for people who don't know, it's it's like a metaphor for the nuclear bombs being dropped on Japan, right? Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, one of the things that a lot of people didn't know for a long time is that Godzilla has this kind of wrinkly, scaly skin, right? It's very, it almost looks like sand that's had like combed, like you combed your fingers through it or something. Mm -hmm, it's because yeah. Godzilla doesn't have scales. He has radiation burns. He's literally covered in radiation burns. So like it's, you know, it's, 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 it's reflective of the scarring that they had from those, from the, from the nukes and his entire origin is and yeah it's absolutely a uh oh their way of dealing with it an entire nation's way so we as americans got this crappy version of this movie a, a quick side tangent is that we actually shipped that back to, J to japan that version <laughs> that american version we sent it back to them and they were like hey check out this version and the japanese people fucking loved it it's actually <laughs> why a lot of the next subsequent godzilla movies are cheesy just versus monster movies. That's why that happened. It's because they were like, man, this was really funny and Americans loved it. Let's just keep making that. But so it wasn't until I believe 2004 or 2007 that we got as Americans that original cut of Godzilla. Nobody in in the United States had seen it until then, really, unless oh. you'd gone to Japan or you had had somebody that sent you a film that they knew it in Japanese, you know, before you had like fan sub websites and stuff, right? That wasn't really around. So my grandfather took me to the community college where they were premiering this movie. And it was all these older people and they had notebooks out and people were taking notes. And I'm pretty sure... It was like a film school thing happening that my grandpa just like heard whiff of and was like, we're going to go see this screening. It changed everything for me because afterward the film, there was a big Q&A about it and they talked about all this, right? And it was the first time I had seen people examine film. It was the first time I had seen a film that I had seen an original of and then this new version changed everything for me. It was the first time that I had been in a group of people that were taking a film seriously. And mm. it was such a unique theater experience because it's this big screen TV thing, you know, the, you know, actual theater screen or whatever in this college wing movie theater. And it was just so different than anything I'd ever done at that time that it really uh, left a lot of impact on me. Oh, well, were you at the, the um, at this experience, you know? Just really quickly, I googled it. It's apparently 2004. So yeah, 
2004. Yeah. Okay. This says I was 15, but that doesn't quite feel right. But maybe, I guess it was. You feel like you were younger? I feel like I was younger because I saw this movie. Like I said, I'm really bad with numbers. So I really try to like think about my life, about where I was living at the time. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't living. I was living in a certain place at that time. So I'm trying to think of how old I was. Um, you know, I was young enough for it to leave a big impact. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just asked because you, you're like in this, you know, college setting where people are engaging with a, a movie discussion. It's like, how much of it could you get? How much of it could you understand? Well, that's why I kind of feel like I might have been younger. George, you said that it released in theaters in America in 2004, right? I have a news article open that is from May 25th of 2004 that says... An uncut version of the 1954 Japanese sci-fi movie Godzilla is finally premiering in U.S. theaters. So I may have seen it earlier because it was at a college theater. It may have been something that somebody brought back from Japan mm. to oh. do a screening of. And that might be why there were so many people doing like a Q&A about it and stuff. Because I, I didn't understand really anything they were talking about. I was in awe of these you know, just the passion. Like, yeah, the passion and like the technicality behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea of there are so many things you could question about the movie and how it was made and what it all means and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. It was you know as close as you can get for me at that age of like, you know, I had seen behind the scenes stuff on movies, but it was the closest I'd gotten to like people really tearing apart how movies work from an Mm -hmm. outside point of view you know from an artistic point of view critical analysis of it Mm. yeah yeah and that just really uh really stuck with me and it's probably a big reason why i love godzilla so much lovely it is ironic that most people consider godzilla a silly franchise even though the beginning (laughs) the first one is not so it's fitting i think that people most people think i have silly taste or silly uh ideas and opinions and my my love and quest for movie criticality came from that same origin. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's amazing. Like the the Godzilla, the first one that I watched, probably the only one. It's the two thousand fourteen one. I was never into Godzilla, and what was what's the other one? The other one is King Kong, like the other like m- big monster, you know. Um, oh man, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna kill King me Kong, here. Right? You're gonna kill me here. So that's is it not? Um, that would be the American thing. Would be King Kong. You know, that's that's like I don't know if you Ray Ray Harryhausen was mm-hmm. a uh, stop motion animation uh, guy, legend. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. And uh, I don't know if he was attached to King Kong, but that's very Harryhausen style. You know that King Kong was done in uh, all stop motion and stuff. As far as I know, Harryhausen started because he was fascinated by the first King Kong and oh, when he saw that stop motion. So that that's what got him started, basically. That makes he sense. did all the the latest stuff with the legendary skeleton fight scenes and you know Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. I think, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I don't want to go back too far or anything like that. But when we, you know, I talked about my favorite genre, uh, the one I really fought with with talking about was tokusatsu, which is um, a Japanese genre. That basically is sci-fi using practical effects is the meaning what it is really what its meaning is but it has evolved <laughs> over time to really include a lot of suitmation you know a lot of how godzilla does and stuff mm-hmm. 
I definitely, I definitely love Godzilla. I think everybody should watch a little more than just the original because the original is great. But uh, you know, there are thirty three of those movies. Um, <laughs> some some of them are really amazing. But when you, but what were you gonna say about you know the being the the big two or whatever? King Kong doesn't even come into my mind when we talk about kaiju or tokusatsu or the big monster just city destroying monsters king kong doesn't even graze my thoughts to be honest i think it's more like of a recency thing so i watched king kong the peter jackson movie not when it came out but like a few years later i really like that one and then more recently i watched the godzilla one and i was like not very into it you know was it a movie like King Kong versus Zilla or something? Yeah, they just did King yeah, Kong versus right? Kong. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's stuck in my mind. That's why I'm pairing them up because mm-hmm. you know of everything that came out after that movie. Yeah, I think from a from a Western outsider perspective, without many touching points of of Kaiju, I can see why King Kong would be the second big one to come to mind. Yeah, that's fair. Do you have any movie to recommend when it comes to that genre that you were talking about? Just like a movie that you... You know, movie-wise, there's a, there's a bunch, but they're not big ones. You know, Godzilla, Gamera, Mothra. Those are your three really big tokusatsu films. There's a lot of tokusatsu television, though. There's, you know, like um, Ultraman and Kamen Rider and Super Sentai are what's called the big three. That's where you get Power Rangers from and stuff like that. Damn, there's a lot of Gamera movies. There's a lot of Gamera movies, yes. Gamera is for the children, by the way, just like Wu-Tang. They're much more geared toward kids than Godzilla films are. Even the ones like Kamen Rider and Ultraman that are TV shows usually release a movie every year that ties into those shows. So there's a lot of tokusatsu films. But it's not really a genre that exists outside of Japan, if it did, mm-hmm. then the MCU would be tokusatsu movies. You know, anything where dudes are wearing a suit, anytime there's just a lot of, I mean, the thing would be considered a tokusatsu movie at that point. Mm. So I guess that's it for questions. Now y'all know who I am. Amazing. Which brings us to Wrist Cutters, 2006 movie by Guran Dukic. What are your guys' first thoughts of it? Do you want to go, Bia, first? Should I go? I picked it, I guess. You can go if you want. Yeah, you picked it. <laughs> so I guess I'll start with why I picked this movie. It is a shining example of speculative fiction. You know, this is a movie that doesn't take place in our reality. Things are different than our reality. Um, but it also isn't as focused on that as something like hard sci-fi is, you know, where they're talking about the phasers, talking about the aliens, they're talking about all these things that make it sci-fi. This is almost a slice of life, but of a life mm-hmm. that we could never live. And that's that's a big reason why I picked this movie. I have a lot of reasons why I love this movie. There's this, this term called like heroin chic, things that are trashy but beautiful, almost. I grew up in a lot of areas that this film looks like. You know, my hometown, every fourth house is abandoned. Every fifth house in a lot of areas of town are abandoned or run down. And to drive out of town and see a couch on the side of the dirt in the desert is not surprising or abnormal. And so there's something 
that I love about that. It reminds me of home almost in a way. Mm -hmm. And this movie's really good at romanticizing these people's situation. So it just almost, it almost romanticizes that even more for me to like think about like this rundown universe they live in. And I kind of love that universe. Yeah, I really do love the spin on what would be a very, you know, sad and bleak theme, but they make it a, a love story and it's romantic and it's a little bit about friendship as well and bonding with the people that you meet. It felt like, do you know those long summer days in a very remote town where nothing's really happening it felt lonely like that the world feels lonely like that but then there's you have these characters that are never smiling you know and they're very warm in a way they're you know there's no big worries in that world and also what i really love about the movie is the look of it it contrasts the story in a way it lacks saturation but at the same time it's full of color through the way that these characters interact. It's very quirky like that, and I really did enjoy watching. Yeah, this was my first time around watching it. I think I liked it the least of us. I still enjoyed it quite a bit. It's not a bad movie at all. I just had a little bit of a problem where it was one of those things that reminded me a lot of other directors' works. And I just played in my mind the whole time of what if this director <laughs> tackled like the exact same story premise. And a lot of the time I felt like, oh man, I really would love this movie if it was just, for example, even more quirky if, let's say, like uh, Jean-Pierre Genet made it the guy who made delicatessen or amelie or i would also probably have enjoyed it if it was like slightly less quirky and a, a bit more serious if the guy um the the japanese director who made afterlife and um shoplifters like afterlife is has like a somewhat similar premise but takes it itself a bit more mm -hmm. serious there's like these slight things where the tone somehow just didn't perfectly work for me and i wish it did because i i like the whole premise of the movie as a whole a lot yeah there's there's also like smaller things like this might be my favorite performance by patrick fugit for the somewhat cynical reason that i don't really think he's that great of an actor and here he didn't have to portray like big emotions you know the the world in which that it all plays out implies a somewhat toned down experience and everything is kind of meh <laughs> from from like just the, the general way people behave which makes sense in the movie so he he somewhat perfectly worked for that but you know it's it's, it's still a somewhat cynical reason sounds great yeah i i liked it a lot had some like minor nitpicks with it but still a very interesting movie glad i checked it out I like both of your guys' points kind of about the muted colors, you know, of the of the saturation of the film. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of, uh, you, you connect to something I never really, I guess, realized is that <clears throat> it really reflects on, like you said, the attitudes of the people. Everybody is kind of muted. 
emotions are muted. Mm-hmm. Um, their actions are kind of muted. Everything is just kind of toned down, you know, just not, not, mm-hmm. uh, at its full capacity and that kind of, a uh, yeah, low energy. Yeah. And that kind of like, uh, is really reflective in the filmography of it. So when you're saying, you know, about like, you wish that you could maybe have seen it from a different director mm-hmm. to see how they would have treated this theme. You know, I have a little bit of knowledge about this movie that I'll end up dropping as we go. But a lot of this movie is actually improv A lot of the lines are oh. just riffed by these actors. So I honestly kind of feel like that's part of the charm of this film is that the director doesn't really have a really strong sense of style or taste or theme or impulse or like impact on this movie. This movie is really driven by its character actors, which all of the actors in this movie are that almost nobody in this movie is like a star. These are character actors and they're driving this. And I, and I really appreciated that personally. I never realized it was um, improvised. There's scenes where, the, you know, riffing, you guys know what riffing is, right? No. What? Uh, riffing? Riffing will basically, we'll, we'll definitely talk about this a lot when we get to Brigsby Bear. It's basically where you would say like, okay, in this scene, you're going to try to buy a car from him. He's going to tell you about the car and you're going to make a joke about how bad the car looks. And that oh, actor... Oh, it's like general directions? Yeah, but that actor will then be like, that car is so bad that I wouldn't pay a dollar. And then they'll step back and come back into this frame and be like, that car is so bad that your mom gave it to me or something terrible. I don't know. Okay. But they just keep making jokes and then the editors pick which ones fit or they like the best. The, like the best. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of that in this movie. There's a lot of riffing. There are, though, fully scenes in this movie that weren't planned at all that they just had the camera rolling and they just let them go. And they're like, nope, that's great. We're going to keep that. That was really, really awesome that you guys just did that on your own. That's so nice. Just gives like a new light to the movie in my eyes. Just, uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Same. Specifically, I guess if we want to lead to spoilers with it, specifically um, the uh, last time that uh, Zia drops Eugene's sunglasses and he's like, don't touch, Mm -hmm. he's like, don't touch my stuff no more. You know, he's all mad about it. And he's like, what? I didn't drop it in the hole. And he like, it's all like exacerbated about it. Yeah. yeah. Dude told, they didn't even know it was filmed. Like they, they knew the film had started, but they weren't doing the scene yet. Totally different scene. And he just dropped the sunglasses on accident and they just went with it. And they went with it. Yeah. That's so, <laughs> it's so nice. All right. So, I mean, that was already somewhat, but I guess we're, we're fully in spoiler territory now. You know, we have we have history talking, the three of us. Mm-hmm. I don't always have the best insight into stuff, but something I do like to bring to the table is I, I like facts. So there's some things I know about this movie that I'd like to bring up that might be kind of interesting. Earlier in the movie, we meet the mechanics that are trying to fix the lights, the headlights, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes, right. And the younger of that couple keeps doing this weird thing with his mouth the entire time where he keeps, like, opening his mouth super wide, like mid-sentences and stuff. Yeah. That was because he couldn't stop smiling. And as you guys know, the movie calls that you can't smile in this world. Um, (laughs) In fact, every single actor in this movie had something that they did to try to keep them from smiling. Oh, The female lead uh, is chewing gum almost consistently throughout the movie because that's what she used to keep her from smiling. The cigarette Mm -hmm. smoking that Eugene's doing constantly 
same idea was to keep him from smiling. Patrick Fugit, he was the only person who didn't have something. And I think it's actually most most notable with him that he almost looks like he's smiling, I think, the most in this movie. Yeah, he's, he sometimes got close where I was like, ah, I can see oh, a little grin there. Yeah, <laughs> in some of the interviews, the, the actors talk about how actually hard that is to portray through your voice positive feelings or happy feelings and not even smile a little bit because it goes against everything you've learned about acting essentially right yeah there's this thing in anomalisa where the protagonist talks about the idea of whilst calling the customer you should always have a smile on your face because you can actually hear it in the voice 100% you can hear a smile in a voice, especially in music and singing. I think that's a big one. You can like hear when somebody's smiling mm -hmm. in a song. Yeah, which is which is a somewhat regular problem with those uh, Disney musical remakes nowadays, where oftentimes it feels like they hit all the notes and it's like a well-sung song, but there's basically no emotion in it. You're not just... You're not just yeah. singing just for the sake yeah. of singing. Yeah. Yeah. It's an emotional outburst portrayed as a song. So this movie has a lot of really great attention to detail as far as suicide itself goes, right? I think that that's something interesting mm -hmm. to point out is the opening scene of the movie immediately goes on that. Do you guys uh, know about cleaning and suicide? No, I didn't. I wrote it down because I was curious uh, as to what exactly it means. Is that like a regular occurrence where people tend to clean up? Before it's like a last himself? burst of energy, right? A big motivational, let me just do this and then I'll just go off. It might be as well just you know, the thing where, you know, the body is going to be found in a certain condition and the person might be preoccupied with the way that the scene might look. And then he half himself. I took it as where the suicide might be an attempt to clean up the mistakes he did in life as well. He's looking back at his life as like a bigger mistake that he did. And the the cleaning up is more of a taking consequences for the for the shit he did, you know, and in a similar way as to the suicide is taking consequence for the, I guess, shitty life he lived or something like that. Mm. That's how I. That's a really, really, really pretty way to see that, honestly. I wouldn't doubt if that uh, if there's people who absolutely thought about it like that. I know that a really common reason is much uh, much sadder. People who are suicidal often feel like they're a burden or their life is a burden, right? So they'll clean everything mm -hmm. so that whoever finds them doesn't have to. And it's just kind of their way of yeah. like alleviating any other burdens. It's also some people don't clean. Some people pay off all their debts or they return all their books, or they do whatever the lasting things that, you know, would get in trouble. They would they cancel all their services or something, you know, so that the next of kin doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. this in this movie, that was just the visual way of showing that, of uh, this, this last yeah. rites that they perform. And then, you know, uh, a fact to go along with that scene is the song being sung when he's cleaning is uh, Tom Waits, who's in this movie. A lot of the other, uh, you know, songs throughout the movie in the actual universe of the dead or whatever you want to call it. A lot of those songs are actually by people who killed themselves. Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of the background oh. songs. And then in some cases it's not. Mikal's overdose scene, I 
believe that person dealt with overdoses, if I'm not mistaken. I know they didn't kill themselves. Mm-hmm. A lot of the songs, when you're listening to it, they did. I love facts as well. I love, I'm a facts lover now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just gives like a, a whole new uh, flavor to the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I love meta storytelling like that, where the more you look into a movie, the more you can explore it, even on a mm-hmm. not interpretation level, but you know, stuff like that's that's kind of knowledge surrounding the movie from the outside. I love all the Easter eggs you can throw in a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, on the topic of music with this movie, the big one is uh, Eugene. Shay Wiggum's character is a real life person that he's portraying. Oh, so that person that killed himself on stage with a beer <laughs> and the electrical <laughs> guitar have No. No, okay. No. Okay, so um he's playing Eugene Hertz of the band Gogol Bordello. And the idea is that it's an alternate whatever reality where that guy has killed himself. No, he's not actually killed himself. He still exists and make music today. Okay. But the band that they listen to, that is Gogol Bordello. It. That is that is a real band and that is who that is supposed to be. He was actually cast as the character he's going to play himself, but uh, I don't remember what happened, but something came up and he couldn't he couldn't do it. Interesting. So my biggest takeaway of this movie on like a thematic side is this whole idea of, I guess it's called protagonist syndrome, where every person goes through life and kind of thinks of himself as the protagonist in their story. You know, you have <laughs> people just sometimes passing by in the subway and you will see them for one second in your life and you don't really think ever again of them and to you they are like extras in a movie basically but at every time basically you see one of those extras that person is also the protagonist in their own story you know and this universe is kind of perfect with pointing this out by giving us this concept of Each and every person in that universe killed themselves in their former lives. You always have that lingering question in the back of your mind as to, okay, so how did this person kill himself? What what were the problems they were facing? It always reminds you of each and every little person passing by in the background of those movies had some deeper story, had some deeper problems in their life and they were the protagonist of their own story you know Mm -hmm. it's kind of a beautiful reminder of that throughout the whole film that was probably the biggest takeaway i had from the movie the thing that i loved the most about it it's a very very nice idea i never even thought about that like never that way yeah that never that never occurred to me no it was always interesting to see the how did they do it scenes uh, where they just put on the screen yeah. the, the way that they did it, they killed themselves. I guess I was, you know, in a way, getting to know a little bit more about that character. The movie in itself, you know, each character has their role in this world. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, they don't have like many emotions going on. So that little peek into what their life was or how their previous life ended it's it was interesting and the way you said it it just yeah that's that's probably why i found it so 
so so interesting it's just this constant reminder it's kind of perfect mm -hmm. for that just because it's such an intimate and specific question to ask like <laughs> how did you kill yourself i mean you you can't speak. yeah, yeah you, you obviously <laughs> you can't know? you obviously can't speak about but but it feels like such an overreaching into a private territory yeah, you yeah, know yeah. i think they even you know kind of they kind of try to tackle that right in the beginning at the bar and he tells her straight up like you know that's a pretty rude question to ask yeah exactly like, yeah yeah they kind of establish already like that's kind of faux pas in this universe I do really like how a lot of them are shot, though. These death sequences, you know, a lot of them are very somber and quick and stuff, but some of them are really neat, like, especially when they're talking about how uh, Eugene's family killed themselves. And for every yes. one that you're seeing, you're seeing another ball get racked down to, like, the pool table. Like, mm -hmm. one, two, three, mm -hmm. for each one of the family members that died or whatever. I didn't even realize that's awesome oh yeah yeah he tells the story of how you know how he did it first ball goes tells the story of his mom next ball or whatever dad next ball Kostya next ball into the hole yeah i really mm -hmm. i really liked that am i allowed to ask you guys questions sure sure go for yeah, it yeah of course am i am i okay <laughs> you said earlier like everybody's got their role mm -hmm. did you mean like uh thematically or like literally within the universe within the universe they've it seems like they own everyone has a, like a job, yeah. Per se, like you know the mechanics. They didn't seem like mechanics before. The policeman, he was a soldier before. It's as if the society keeps running mm -hmm. in a way, and it's odd because you think that if you're in this type of purgatory, things will happen just because right like things will continue to function because of any force or entity that's running the place not that you had to do it still yeah the very bureaucratic way the universe is built up is kind of mm -hmm. hilarious the first thing we find out after he killed himself is that he like got a job at kamikaze pizza <laughs> yeah <laughs> great a, great name such a dumb line but i loved it <laughs> So I have this thing about like how long you can watch something that you need to suspend your reality until you start that starts falling apart. And I think I may have seen this movie too many times because I have nitpicked and back and forth with this whole idea so much that you're talking about right now with like there being like a bureaucracy almost the universe or like having these people have jobs and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. In one way. It makes sense to me that if you were a mason, you worked with stone, you worked with you know, building materials, and you killed yourself, and you came to this world, and everything fucking sucks, that after so long, you might be like, all right, well, I might as well take my tools and my trade and make this place a little better, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how the buildings got there or whatever. But there's also, like, the police officers they're not just dudes that started being police officers. There's something interesting that alludes to the fact that the people in charge are a real thing because who gave these police officers these jobs? They are wearing uniforms. Yeah. It's a shitty t-shirt that's like half tucked in yeah. or whatever, you know, like, but they have the little like badge or the tie, like they all have it. Mm -hmm. So there must actually be somebody in charge. And that was always kind of a piece of logic that bothered me that Eugene was so in disbelief about that 
because it's it's clear. I mean, there's some kind of system behind this. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even point out the specific thing right now, but once the reveal kind of happened that the PIC, the people in control, that they were a real thing and with that scene at the end where he kind of takes his file out and that's when he goes back to life, I guess, it somewhat bothered me. It was one of those nitpicky things where I wish the movie didn't try to even explain it away and give like a logical reason as to why the universe works i wish it was mm-hmm. more vague with it where where it it's kind of just this magical reality and and you just have to accept it and no explanation giving end of story because i feel like the movie tries to give you those answers but once you question it it kind of falls apart and why even give an answer at that point yeah and in in a lot of ways, it's funny because I think that I'm a little bit of the opposite in that that scene just makes me ask more questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Because it, it tries to be an answer as to how the universe functions, but it just makes it so much more convoluted and mm-hmm. it's almost unnecessary detail added that just makes the universe somewhat fall apart, I feel like. You know, you know what uh, detail has drove me crazy ever since I first saw this movie. Oh, no. Give it to me. <laughs> so Neller has a dog, right? Mm-hmm. So did he, as an angel, sneak a dog into this place? Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, I or, was. <laughs> or did a dog kill itself yeah. and yeah. go here as a punishment? True. I'm trying to think if we ever saw any other animal. I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. Like, not even a bird. Yeah. There's no stars. Which is a little bit off because there's a sun. It's is it like, okay, are they saying there's not life in other universes? Is this yeah. like specific to her Earth? Mm-hmm. Is it only the solar system? What what is happening here? It's definitely something. Yeah, there's a lot of deleted scenes in this movie, as there is we know every other movie, and mm-hmm. I feel like some of them fill in some of these spots. I don't remember enough of them to fill those in right now. There's to these cats spots. as well. <laughs> There's what? There's cats as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, like you said, George, that it falls apart a little bit when you when you start to overanalyze it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very rudimentary in its in its way that it's filmed. It's very bare bones in a lot of ways. I think that is actually kind of a good thing. Some art doesn't need to be super talented to be beautiful, and I think yeah. that that's really representative in this movie. But it does, you know, like any untalented piece of art, once you examine it under a microscope, it starts to kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was watching this movie and it gave me, I think it happens with almost every 2000-ish uh, movie that I watch. Movies like this one, I don't think they would work in this day and age. Like, mm-hmm. not even work. I don't think there's people even thinking about making them. There's a, a thing about the look of it, about the quirkiness of the story, like a careless experimentation that I saw so many, so many times in the 2000s and the 90s that I don't feel like I get that now. I kind of agree in a lot of different medias that the 90s and 2000s were a little more Wild West mm-hmm. than things are now. But I think specifically 
in the case of films, something that I've felt is that in the 2000s, it was stories. We were writing weird stories that you wouldn't normally make movies about mm -hmm. and taking really big risks with that. And I feel like nowadays what you get more is experimental film styles. It's more about how is it made rather than yeah. like, what is it about, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it definitely still exists totally there's lots of movies that are pushing the boundaries of what this film is about or whatever mm -hmm. i think that's something i really appreciate about this because you know to me story is king and this story is just so different and unique like you said and i yes. really appreciate that as well one trend that is kind of right now on the story side the current hip thing to do but i totally appreciate and love it is that something that i pointed out as a direct criticism of this one, that we don't really get the clear answers anymore when it's a, a somewhat vague thing. I'm specifically thinking of Bardo and Tar as recent examples where you have somewhat dreamlike states, but you don't ever really get the explanation as to, okay, is it actually a dream? Is it supposed to be some hallucination? Is it some, you know, I feel like in the early 2000s, you would have that moment of, even in that movie, where he at some point, after that floating over the fence scene, he just wakes up and you have like, oh, it was just a dream, explaining mm -hmm. thing away, whilst nowadays you could just have a straight up cut to the next scene, no explanation given, and you're left to think of it of your own and what it all implies. I feel like that's kind of where where storytelling on an experimental level is going nowadays. And I kind of prefer it this way. <laughs> the way it is now or the way it was? Yeah, the, the way it is now. Even in that sad dream sequence, he confronts his parents and the memory of them and they look at him with a flashlight, you know. It, the scene isn't about the literal thing happening anyways. It's already trying to portray just this emotional side but it kind of felt the urge to give a logical explanation which i just don't think it's necessary at all because the scene was already only about the psychological implications anyways okay. yeah what's interesting is that you know this movie really tries to do that what you're talking about you know the ambiguous uh ending mm -hmm. um when you know he talks in the movie and we do see it as you're explaining it now that he dreams that he's in a coma and you know his parents are in a room next door or something like that and that's the ending that we get and yeah. you're left thinking if it's like a it's like a near-death experience like a big hallucination but if so why does she smile back is she's just smiling because you know, this guy is sitting in a, in a bed next to me and he's smiling at me. I should smile back kind of thing. Or is there an understanding there? Mm -hmm. Is it like everything that we saw really happened? A beautiful ending. It takes you on a, a completion of a journey that, you know, this guy killed himself probably, you know, because his girlfriend broke up with him. And he gets to go on a pursuit for that same girlfriend only to end up loving someone else that mm -hmm. he gets to live life with again maybe yeah in the ending i liked it a lot where 
we don't get a literal explanation as to what was the black hole under the car seat, you know? Yeah, he just falls in well. there, then he wakes up. I like that part. I kind of wish just that one insert shot of the guy taking out the file wouldn't be there, you know? Just if you take out that shot and it would just be the, he falls into the black hole, he wakes up. We don't know, did he really wake up? Is that a dream now? Was the whole thing a dream? Whatever. End of the story. Cut. That that would kind of be my my perfect version of that ending. Mm-hmm. What I'm is what I'm trying to get at, I guess. Yeah, it would be a really solid open ending. I love the way it's presented, like the little the feathers coming out of the file and stuff. Cute little touch. I really like that it's included. I though disagree with you, Bia, on that being vague uh, at all. I really think that it very strongly implies that they're going to be together that this is that that yeah. they do know each other from this moment her smile to me is way more than just a normal smile like if you rewatch it like her lip is quivering mm-hmm. like it's like this is like it's a very emo- i think it's one of the most emotional single facial expressions i've ever seen in a movie to be yes, honest yes 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 i agree it's like more 90 percent that and 10 percent a little bit of that one people mm-hmm. might get the idea that it might have been something else mm-hmm. what I was it leaves the door slightly open it's not like a shut case and yeah. yeah complete sense yeah i can feel that on the same subject and you're saying you know you prefer almost that when uh the movie doesn't have to explain the world that it's in mm-hmm. that's such a fine line to walk because for me personally, if a movie can show you this universe and you can yourself work out the rules of this universe fairly quickly enough, right? I really appreciate that because sometimes it's like you just want to learn the rules of the game and play. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I don't want to spend 30 minutes of the movie just trying to figure out what exactly is happening here. Mm-hmm. I can totally agree there. Like I... The thing is, I either want a universe to be completely explainable, where all the details just add up and it feels like this perfectly crafted gem, where no matter what question you throw at it, you can find an answer in there. I think Charlie Kaufman is really great with that, for example. And he's my favorite screenwriter, so I obviously love when those universes work out. I just, whenever it comes to something being dreamlike, being vague in a concept, and then they try to give us like an, a cheap explanation for it, then I'm really like, you could have just left that away. I think the final thing I really want to say about this movie, the message to me is that even in the shittiest situations, something amazing can come of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My life kind of follows that. I really try to live my life in a way where I can find the good in any type of like bad happening to me. And the romanticism of finding the good in shitty things is, is always appeals to me, mm-hmm. which is why I think that the movie that you guys chose to companion with this movie is such an amazing choice because I think thematically it is uh, incredibly similar in that exact vein. Yeah. Hope. For me, this movie is more of a... It doesn't matter. You can be obsessed with this person, okay? And little do you know that out of nowhere, when you least expect it, 
you'll be obsessed with another one. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's the love for me. Uh, you know, we have this guy that is literally obsessed with his ex-girlfriend. He really loves her. He gets to know this new person. She's probably the the only person apart from Eugene that makes him not laugh, but have fun. Yeah, he finds happiness in this bleak world. And I vibe with that. One thing that I wanted to add, it's a beautiful scene where they find this beach and they kiss for the first time. And then when, when they wake up in the morning, you know, <laughs> this beautiful beach by night, like it was mm -hmm. lit by moonlight, turns into this graveyard for condoms and uh, needles. And, yeah, yeah just not very glamorous. But yeah, it just plays into the idea of, you know, love is beautiful, even in the gutter, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you can have a positive outlook and stuff, even in the worst circumstances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Which leads us to ratings. Yeah, this is easily a 10 for me. Nice. I loved this movie when I was a kid. I was a little emo goth kid who was obsessed with romance, if you can believe that. <laughs> really was. This just sung to me, and it always kind of has. Yeah, this is a nine for me. It's my second time watching it, and I love it the same way uh, I did the first time I did uh, watch it. So yeah, a nine. As expected, I'm the lowest. To me, it's a seven, leaning more towards an eight, but have some problems with it. Still fantastic concept, super interesting movie, and don't regret at all watching it. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to our second movie, The Companion Piece, and another positive outlook on somewhat fucked up themes. <laughs> Brixby Bear, the 2017 directorial debut of Dave McCrary. Thoughts? This movie is amazing. I love this movie so much. It is the embodiment of always find good within the bad. Mm -hmm. Almost every time something bad happens in this movie, it's so quickly fixed. Even the high stakes are often just not that bad of an issue. And ah, fuck, it's just so positive. It's so positive. I love this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what I get from it as well. Just the overwhelming positivity of it, especially the teenage characters. So we have these teen teens that are confronted with uh, this person that went through stuff and there's no malice, there's no jokes, there's like this overwhelming feeling of welcoming and inclusivity that I really liked. The main character itself, it's just so warm. And yeah, he's so pure. Joyful, pure, yeah. Can't help falling in love with the overwhelming happiness of this movie. Yeah, and even as you pointed out, they are super welcoming, but even there, there's some nuance to it where at some point the sister, you know, the parents kind of push her to do something with him, which it feels true. They all feel like positive people and with a positive outlook, but not to a degree where things feel 
like a satire. It feels earnest. Mm -hmm. I was always on edge in this movie, in a way. Mm -hmm. Fearful. Yeah. For James, my James boy. Even though the movie feels and portrays itself as this super positive thing and it feels like watching the most wholesome feel-good movie ever, I have some slight negative or a depressing interpretation of the whole thing a bit. It's not bad, not too bad, but I'd, I still feel like there's some some vagueness or some... Mm. The, the so your adored uh, vagueness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things about this movie that I think are just fantastic in their execution. As you were saying, like the, uh, the feeling on edge, I mm -hmm. absolutely felt that I've seen this movie three times now. Um, and the first time purely just worried for what's going to happen. Yeah. And every time the problem is fixed. I am so relieved. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's and it's such a roller coaster. The first time I saw this, I think I shed like a single tear. I think I did like the the one tear, you know, at the <laughs> end. And I was like, that was beautiful. And the second time I saw this, I watched it while people walked in front of the TV, while people stood in front of the TV, there were kids running around. I had I was at a family member's house. It was absolutely chaotic. I couldn't hear half of the movie. I could only read the subtitles. And I almost wept watching it like because i knew how positive things were being i like a character would be introduced mm -hmm. and i would see the beginning sparks of that friendship and i'd just be like fuck you don't even know how beautiful that's gonna be for y'all oh yeah. yeah like it just it just it just it just smacked me across the face the second time yeah i had a similar experience anytime like something new came up i was like oh i know how that's gonna go and i'm so happy for it <laughs> exactly yeah exactly yeah. it's like seeing somebody about to open a present and you know what it is yeah exactly exactly that's a perfect analogy actually <laughs> there are some things about this movie that i really relate to actually first off let's say you know all movies are exaggerations or not all movies but a lot of movies are exaggerations mm -hmm. right so let's just get that out of the way. This is definitely, this film is an exaggeration of a lot of things. For sure. He's clearly obsessed. He's massively obsessed with this entertainment entity, this thing that doesn't really exist. And I struggle with that, of getting obsessed with characters and franchises and stuff. So I really relate to that. And then something that's happened, as you mentioned, I own a film club called The Cinemates. A lot of them, of the members of the Cinemates, are much younger than me. And I've spent a lot of time talking and interacting with people who are much younger than me. And there is a lot of weird emotions behind knowing you are an older individual hanging out with all these young people. Whereas this movie, again, Elephants in the Room about this, mm -hmm. does explore that a little bit. Yeah, true. So there are things about this exaggerated character of James that I really see in myself that just, that hits me in a lot of ways. I think we can get to spoiler land, maybe. Sure, let's do that. So the opening. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys have memories of the first time watching it? So because like in the first 10 minutes, you have 
no fucking clue where this film is going. Or you yeah. believe you have a clue, but you, you don't. <laughs> I was absolutely thrilled and here for the ride when I watched it the first time. But I thought for totally different reasons. I thought this was gonna be like a post-apocalyptic, slightly dorky movie. I was confused by a, a lot of things in the beginning after the cold opening of watching a Brixby Bear episode together with him. You have this scene where he and his supposed parents are together in the living room and he's having this presentation of how Brixby Bear can finally beat a Sun Snatcher. And you, you expect the parents to be like, okay, that's great that you have this hobby and kind of how the mother reacted but you should do something useful with your time and the dad is like so into it and <laughs> just yeah. instantly discussing with him it's a very interesting opening and super efficient i checked this time at the 11 minute mark is when the police show up oh wow yeah and i think it's kind of perfect if you would spend any more time in that bunker, the ripping us out of it would feel weird because we would have felt comfortable in that space at that point. We would have really adapted to it. And at the 11 minute mark, you're just barely getting a grip of everything before the, the floor gets ripped out underneath you again. And if it would have been shorter, then I feel like it would have been overwhelming as to you don't really know what this place is yet i think it's it's such a perfect amount of time to spend in the bunker and not be too attached to it yet where it's easy to start over again with him i agree the the beginning is very very tight very effective very solid and there were a couple of scenes that had me you know puzzling like the handshakes why are they handshaking yeah. <laughs> at the dinner table? What is up with this fake firefly in the backyard? Yeah, and the fox. And there was an interesting thing where the mom, she didn't seem too interested in the Brigsby Bear stuff. Mm -hmm. But then she asks him, have you done your studies or have you solved uh it's like this problem. I don't remember the name. Some made it has up a name. Weird yeah. name. Vandersmite yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah Vandersmite. Yeah. It's something like that. And that got me wondering, like, is that like a, a physics problem masked as a Brigsby Bear problem? You know, because we do see like an episode where he's learning math. I was wondering if like how smart was he? But I guess it's just a, a Brigsby Bear thing because later, you know, the father, I think he conf uh, tells him in, pri in prison that he solved the, the theorem and uh, whatever. And, the solution was um, six. Yeah, it was six. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's just things that kept me wondering in the first 10 minutes. I still don't get the handshakes. Why were they so formal about that? Especially like a woman that kidnaps a baby because she wants to be a mother so badly. Why would she have that type of contact with her son? You know, why wouldn't she be more warm about it? Just odd. 
Yeah, I feel like it's it's more of a thing where they they are not that great with human interaction and adapted to how you usually behave and acceptable behavior. So I, I just took it as like a first indication of something's not quite right with these people. Mm-hmm. I definitely felt like in the first, you know, I would say five minutes, you know, I was trying to figure out if this is one of those movies like, uh, oh man, what's that director's name? Quentin Dupuis, Dupuis, Dupuis? Quentin Dupuis. Mm-hmm. Yep. What you said, um, <laughs> you know, he makes these movies where you're kind of in a different world, you did an alternate reality where people just behave in this kind of different way. And I was trying to figure out if that's what this was. As soon as I started piecing together that they're in this bunker, right? And that the animals outside are clearly fake. And mm-hmm. then what really set me off is there's like a poster in his room that's like, curiosity is an unnatural emotion. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this dude is captive. <laughs> I kind of got it. I kind of like kind of picked it up. But be beyond that, like, it's just an explosive kind of a, of an opening, you know, without having actual explosions, without having a lot of action. It's so, like you kind of said, ripped from that place, right? Is very mm-hmm. apt. Like it's, it literally rips you away. Yeah, it, it makes you comfortable enough with the place in the beginning where you then really empathize with the protagonist and yes. feel along with him. The way he gets dropped into the real world must have been like reality shattering for him, you know? Mm-hmm. Everything he learned was wrong. It must have been horrible. And you're invested enough in this fake world that he lives in at that point that you, you're along for the ride. You feel that emotion with him. Back to talking a little bit about like, you know, when a film explains things to you or whatever, this is a great way to balance that of leaving you in the dark, but giving you know you explanation through his explanation i really like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that i that i think that really worked well for you know making the viewer comfortable with that world was that routine sweet sequence where you know he wakes up he does his chores he goes to the gym to work out sees his father go away with a mask and then there's like discomfort that it gets back to to watching Brigsby rinse and repeat. I think that like was very effective just to you know to show us that this is his life. There's not anything else to it. That it, this is it, and you know that by the time that he gets out from that environment, he's being put in a situation where it's totally new. It's totally out of the routine that he's used to, uh, out of his comfort zone. And it also gives us somewhat of context as to how much Brixby means to him, because it is mm-hmm. like the one thing to, for him to escape his reality and that's in that bunker, you know. What's interesting, you know, is it's not just his escape from reality. It's also his only way to, um, as you said, embrace it. He talks about 
Brigsby fan one, Brigsby fan two, Brigsby yeah. fan three. Yeah, that's um, what I was looking at. Oh. <laughs> oh my god! I love that I'm, line. I, I, I want, I want, I want to go on about 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 his experiences with Brigsby girl. Uh, something definitely happened between him and Brigsby girl that he is ashamed <laughs> of, and that he's not happy are his parents. That definitely, I feel like, is implied. But you know, he talks about how like we're doing something important. You know, we're talking about this this thing. Mm-hmm. Man, do I know what that feels like talking about things you watched on the internet with strangers. <laughs> couldn't be me. <laughs> it couldn't be me. I yeah, know for what real. You're about. Not an even no I have no experience there. That's his way of interacting with the world too, right? That's his way of trying to like reach out. And like Brigsby's also teaching him things about his world and stuff. So it's an interesting balance that he has between escapism and embracing what's around him. Mm-hmm. It's almost like without Brigsby, nothing can make sense because everything has only made sense through Brigsby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's interesting in this journey to have closure, in a sense, it's closure about the story of Brigsby, but in the meta sense, it's closure about, you know, what he went through and his situation. Is Brigsby in a way, but Brigsby also showed him what the world is like and what's possible and how you should act. And now he has friends and family that can do that for him. So he no longer needs Brigsby and he can let go of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very like the scene where, you know, he's at the theater and everybody's hugging him and he sees Brigsby on the stage. There's a smile, there's a, a closure, there's a, a thank you, you know, mm-hmm. you've served your purpose. And now I have all of these people around me that can show me life, how life can be and how happy I can be. I also think that to the people around him, once he's outside, Brixby Bear is kind of the way they learn about his world about his mm-hmm. thought process you know mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's kind of their entry point into his life as well so it, it works into both directions which is interesting that's right when the therapist was it the therapist i think it was when she breaks down to him you know um it was your mother that you know it was a close network mm-hmm. yeah it was probably your parents that were writing those messages to you and it goes like Brigsby Boy 2? And they're like, no. <laughs> and Brigsby Boy 3. <laughs> this is probably the only line that can give me the same amount of laugh and sadness. Because I was crying. I yeah. was not. I was like, there was tears falling down my face at that point. But the, it was such a funny way to put the <laughs> username. <laughs> when that moment happens, he's like, he says the Brigsby Boy 1, Brigsby Boy 2. He goes, what about Brigsby girl? And they're like, yeah. yeah, I would assume, right? And he sinks down into his chair and makes this face. And then there's a scene later where he's like talking about he's never really had experiences with a girl mm-hmm. at the party. Yeah. And he literally says, well, there was this one time, but it turned out it was just my mom met, or my parents messing with me on the computer. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, no, dude, he totally <laughs> like had cyber relations with one of his parents. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, man. What a rough existence to be in. One thing that's interesting is 
why did they choose to keep it 80s like was it like for him to not have cell phone that's easy that's easy that's a, that's actually i feel like that's an easy one because it wouldn't make any sense if the world has ended outside that how would you get oh, new technologies yeah. you would just have the ones you've always grown up with yeah true so when he probably like gained like this sense of consciousness right it was probably the 80s and they just kept it kept it like that yeah of course yeah sure mm -hmm. yeah i think that's that's also as good as any point to bring up my somewhat cynical meta interpretation of this all i feel like the movie is somewhat a comment on the dangers of nostalgia where the movie only ever looks back at this horrible time like if you think about it on a more logical uh, side of the things this is a horrific thing that happened to him it's insane mm -hmm. and it looks back with so much nostalgia it focuses just on Brixby Bear and just on the positive sides of it where it kind of points out the the horrors of nostalgia when we look back at I don't know, wh whatever time period, look at the, the 20s. We think of like beautiful dresses and oh, how how amazing was art deco of an architecture style. How fantastic were the cars back then. But we don't look at all of the on the things of like racism was horrific. F women in most countries couldn't vote. Like, you know, nostalgia is really a dangerous slippy slide to to go down to and forget about all the horrors that came with the time and just focus on the positive stuff of it so i think to a degree that movie is kind of like playing a trick on you just being that positive i don't know man i kind of okay like i i agree with your point about it being the dangers but i don't agree with nostalgia i think that i would say of escapism um mm -hmm. as a whole yeah, but maybe. I don't. I don't really know why. Why nostalgia necessarily, specifically? I think because just the not in universe. Like you, you already gave a great explanation as to why in universe it all is very eighties. But just mm -hmm. of an outside perspective, we are not stuck in the eighties. When we look at this, when we look at the aesthetic of Brixby Bear, at how the song plays out. Um, it's all very much Teletubbies. It's, you know, it's old media that that resembles in our mind. It reminds us of our own childhood to a degree, Yeah, it's I like guess. a child, childhood companion kind of thing. Yeah, so, it very much maybe. plays with the idea of nostalgia. I could see that. I kind of, you know, like, he kind of mentions a couple times that the older tapes are different. That, like, there's different eras that he goes through he mentions <laughs> one time that there's a time before they even meet the evildoer so like there's a time before uh -huh. even the stories had sun snatcher in them right mm -hmm. so i kind of took it like this has really evolved with him so it's yeah. really changed over the years so i never really took it as um him having a sense of nostalgia or like i guess i never felt nostalgia feelings from it you know mm -hmm. yeah i i feel a lot of nostalgia from it just from the from the aesthetic and everything like, it totally reminded me of just the, the dumb things I watched as a child. I mean, Sun Snatcher is a sun with a face on it. That's, like, yeah, it straight like up the Teletubby <laughs> baby. <Yeah. laughs> creepy, creepy, creepy stuff there. I think for me, it's what 
probably Harry Potter is because if I hear like the first notes of the Edwigs theme, I going to, you know, oh my god, it's taking me back childhood and whatever. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the world in itself, it was a form of escapism, you know, it was a form of dreaming about, you know, this fantasy world where people are uh, magicians. <laughs> Maybe I could be too, you know, like the whole thing. Maybe here it's like a little bit both a form of escape and it still invokes like nostalgia. Yeah, I'm not even saying that it's like a clear case of this is what the mm -hmm. filmmakers were trying to tell us all along. Yeah, it's just I'm just saying it, yeah. uh, this time around, I, I really thought about that aspect and it made me kind of question as to is it just a positive movie after all, you know? Yeah. One thing that we were talking about in regards to the father, the son snatcher, <laughs> <laughs> being, you know, an artist of his own and now is continuing to pursue that artistic side to give this world, this fantastical world to his uh, captive. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say child, but for him, it, James, he feels like a child to him. So he holds on to his creative side, this dreamy side that he has, and he probably has a boring job to pay for it. And there was a really nice scene between James and Detective Vogel after he displays a portion of a, a play that he once did in yeah. high school. James turns to him and says, why don't you act anymore? You know, you get older and move on and now I'm doing this. Like This is like the job that pays the bills. He says, it's very sad you didn't get to do what was important to you. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's it's an outside perspective of this pure character that comes from a place where his creativity was just encouraged, right? He was always doing these creative projects about Brigsby, and then he comes out into the world and he sees that, you know, there's people that have to give up on their dreams because they need to work and pay the bills. You guys know me, like, I'm very much... Uh, Follow your passions, follow your dreams, mm -hmm. like dreams, yay. <laughs> I love that this movie touched on that and just showed us someone that... He lives that. Pursue, yeah, he lives that. He tried to pursue his passion for Brigsby in any way that he could. You know, the project is very sweet because it's so DIY, it's so homemade, but it's made with love and care and friends and friendship. Lovely first project. You said, like, him talking about, like, the guy just sad you didn't get to follow your dreams, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't even, like, occur to him that people don't. It's, she's just like, oh, well, that sucks for you. Goodbye. I'm going to go do that now. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just such a, it's such a, he's so positive about everything. I really, really, really love it. It's just such good feelings. Everything about this movie is such good feelings. Mm -hmm. I even wrote down, there's, there's one thing where you can see how that positivity kind of influenced the people around him yeah by the end you have that scene where the dad goes to the police department and i'm not really sure why exactly maybe he wanted to get the props or something mr fogel uh just <laughs> greets him with is it about felber mortis 
and the dad is super yes. confused and yeah. we don't really get an explanation for it but we can assume that that's like an inside joke of the Brixby Bear universe and he says something like that's just something we, we talk here in the police department so <laughs> yeah. the, the whole <laughs> Brixby Bear lingo is such a common thing at that point in the police department which is that's a fantastic detail and it instantly gets dropped it's not like like a thing that's a lot of attention is brought to by the filmmaking yeah. but it's it's such a small little detail that adds to the universe yeah i think it, it mentions the i don't know how to pronounce it but that in one of his lines or maybe when they're filming after something like that i think um, i think when they when they are filming the Star Wars-esque sequence with him. Yes. Yeah. Mm. It's, that's clearly, clearly a uh, homage to Mark Hamill. Oh, yeah, definitely. For uh, sure. That moment, which a side note, Mark Hamill was asked, because I think these were made in the same, like right one after another, he did Star Wars and then this, you know, asked his feelings about film, coming back to film or something like that. And he said that he really preferred doing Brigsby Bear because at least he had lines. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Damn. Yeah. You guys are about Feldo Mortis is the name of the character that that dude is playing mm-hmm. in the Brigsby Bear movie. Yeah. That's his character's mm-hmm. name. So when the dad comes in and he's like, is this about Feldo Mortis? He's basically saying, are you coming to like be mad at me be that I'm being in your <laughs> son's movie? <laughs> Which this is a great lead in. The reason I know this, then I figured this out because I, I'm not gonna lie, I googled it. I tried to find out what the fuck Feldo Ortiz meant for like a, ten minutes. There's a gag reel. There's a bloopers reel for this movie on YouTube that you can watch. Oh, interesting. Oh. And I watched it, and uh, I learned two things. Well, first off, Feldo Ortiz's, but that we were talking about earlier, riffing, that this movie is super riffing, like. Almost everything in this movie that people are saying that's kind of funny is just those actors making those jokes. They do that, like, what's Felda Mortis? And he goes, like, oh, it's uh, a T. Or, oh, it's a it's a type of boxing I've picked up. Like, he, he has, like, four different lines he gives out for Damn. that. But that video actually will show you, like, there's a lot of scenes that could have gone very differently. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I wonder if the mm-hmm. Brigsby Boy 1, Brigsby Boy 2 was, <laughs> was like that as well. I have no idea, but there's a bunch of deleted scenes that you can kind of see in the video. And you get a little bit of interaction between like the detective and the kids uh-huh. while he's in the hospital, while they're unloading all the trucks full of the Brigsby Bear stuff. So there's definitely some deleted scenes in this movie that I think might have been interesting to see. Mm-hmm. The biggest one that I wish we knew more of or that they showed more of is him befriending Andy Samberg's character in the mental uh, institution. Yeah. Yeah, true. He's 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 then in his movie later. True. I saw. Which implies that like that character had some arc that got him out of the mental institution and that they like got a hold of him and were like you should be in this movie and i i bet you there's more deleted scenes i bet you there's stuff about that character i bet you there's like a conversation they had in the hospital or something maybe just fled escape through the broken window you know (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's actually funny one of the like riffs is he's like he comes in and he gives them all the weapons, right? Uh huh. Yeah. One of the riffs he comes in, he's like, "Are you doing it tonight?" And he's like, "Yeah, I just don't know how yet." And he's like, 
I mean, you could just go through the window. <laughs> it was, it's just so good. One last thing that I want to say, like about, you know, being on edge constantly with this movie, always waiting for people to be mean to him, especially the teenagers. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's situations with the, the cops that other detective when he got arrested for, you know, making an explosive yeah. and ended blowing off. I'm sorry to you and I'm very sorry to America. Sorry to America. <laughs> yeah. So funny. <laughs> Some people are mean and they just, you know, they they just think that jokes are allowed in, you know, any situation. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that here. You get like this pure positivity from people. It's almost like fantasy-like, you know, but it's so good to see a movie doing this type of thing. It's talking about Brigsby Bear and Spence is really into it. It doesn't have second intentions, you know, he wants to have fun. He wants to put his, you know, filmmaking skills to the test as well. And this girl like Meredith, uh, Meredith, 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 yeah, she's also... She's not into him, but she had fun with him. And, you know, there's, you know, some questionable age play there that, you know, it's a little yeah, bit weird. There's, but, you there's know. that elephant. Yeah. But, you know, she's really nice. You know, she doesn't break his heart. Like, uh, it's very... I I love that. Mm-hmm. Everybody's just so positive. I have also one last thing. The character development of this movie is kind of insanely good like it's not the focus of the movie at all but it's it's ridiculously good one hour into the movie we have the whole camping trip and it's such a huge contrast from his very first interactions with people outside of the bunker where at this point he and his sister are interacting in a very playful manner and they are on the same page Uh, you have him addressing meredith in with like this thing of like yeah i don't really want to get married (laughs) you know he's he's, he's actively searching out the communication with others and yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's just such a lovely written movie yeah because he spent like all his life you know not having those types of interactions and now you know he wants to tell people about his world and he wants to reach out to people and it's it's beautiful to see Mm -hmm. I think the last thing I would add would be um, a lot of this movie I think that I really love is also, besides the obvious, we talk about the positivity, all these things, is the collaboration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the human yeah. the human element of humans working together. And what you were saying, Bia, about you know, how positive all these characters are and they have no ill wills or no you know, other intentions, right? I think that really helps drive one of my favorite moments in this movie and it's such a small such an insignificant moment is when you know him and his friend are talking about the movie and they're gonna make it and he looks at him and he goes you really want to do this with me yeah and he's like yeah dude of course i do blah 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 blah. and he's like you're my friend yeah that's locked in and you really believe it i think like a lot of people have struggled you know in the past of like 
do you really want to do this project with me? You really want to do this collaborative thing? Like, are you sure you want to like be my friend enough to like deal with me that long? Mm-hmm. You self doubt, you know, it's really hard for me at least to get to that point where I don't have that self doubt, but you believe it mm-hmm. in that moment. You absolutely believe it when he's like, you really do. And he's like, yeah. And you just fully are on board. And it's a, a very vulnerable feeling that they create in that very small moment. Beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> what a fantastic movie. Yeah. It really is. So let's go ratings. What are you, what are you guys stars in this one? I had it initially at an 8 out of 10. On a rewatch, it climbed to a 9. I love this movie. Uh, I give this 10 Swordus Crystals. Uh, <laughs> this movie just makes me absolutely just gleeful. I just love this movie. It's I, powerful. I give it an 8. Going on 9. We'll see. But it's, it's an 8, yeah. It's very good. Really like it. And that's a wrap. For next week, we are going back to the normal episode format with three movies. First, The Whale. That's the story of an English teacher that, after years, tries to reconnect with his daughter. The latest Darren Aronofsky movie from 2022, starring Brandon Fraser, Sadie Sink, Ong Shao, and Ty Simpkins. The second movie is Requiem for a Dream. Made in the year 2000, it follows four interconnected lives as they navigate the world of addiction. The final movie we're gonna discuss is Vortex, the new film by Gaspar Noé. Similar to Aronofsky, the French author is generally known for more extreme work, not holding back on violence and sexuality. But like Aronofsky's newest, Vortex is also a very intimate, small-scale story focused on an old couple struggling with the horrors of age. If you don't want to get spoiled for these movies, you have two weeks to prepare. Thank you, Devin, for coming. It was lovely to have you here. I hope you had fun. I absolutely did. It was an honor uh, to be on your guys' podcast. It was really cool. I'm Bia. I'm Devin. I'm George. And you just listened to two euros and a dollar per movie. <laughs>